Alright, so in this episode, we're going to look at some very important details of Genesis chapter 3 in light of what we've been learning in previous episodes about gods, that is, other Elohim, lowercase g, or sons of God, members of his divine council, and God's image bearers, that is, his image bearers both in heaven and on earth. In Genesis 2 and 3, we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. As we've seen, Eden is not only God's residence, but Eden is also God's headquarters for his plans for planet Earth. When we think of Eden, both images should come to mind. It's God's residence, that is his divine dwelling place, and it's God's headquarters, as Dr. Heiser calls it, the nerve center for God's plan on Earth. And since God dwells in Eden, this means that his divine counsel meets there as well. In Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image, in which he revealed his plan to his divine counsel to make humans in his image, just as the heavenly beings of his divine counsel are also made in his image. Genesis 1 and 2 together reveal these image bearers on earth are charged with multiplying, filling the earth and extending God's rule, his kingdom over planet earth. In Genesis 1.28, this passage is often referred to as the, as the dominion mandate, where we see that God's plan is for humans to utilize the gifts of earth to make the world a better place, as we saw in our last episode, to extend Eden over the whole planet while enjoying God's presence. Now, God said he commissioned them, he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve were to be steward kings of earth, extending God's kingdom, his rule under God's authority and by his commission. That's important to know. Eden is God's residence and headquarters on earth. Humans find their identity and purpose within these first two chapters, which outline God's plan for his image bearers on earth to extend his kingdom on earth. But then, Genesis 3 informs us that something has gone terribly wrong. Genesis 3 shows us how sin and suffering has become a part of our everyday existence. Speaking of suffering, let's return for a moment to the book of Job. Believe it or not, before we look at the fall of Adam and Eve, there's something else we need to be aware of. We know humans rebel, but what about these other Elohim, these other sons of God, can, can they? Did the rebellion of image bearers in heaven have anything to do with the rebellion of image bearers on earth? Most of the book of Job consists of words from Job's so-called friends, uh, you may recall, these not-so-good friends try to help Job realize that he is the source of all his problems. They want Job to understand that he is suffering because of his own sin and rebellion against God. Now, here's the thing. We, the readers of Job, know the story. We know that is not why Job is suffering. Right? We learned that in the first chapter. His friends could not be more wrong with their assessment. However, much of what they are communicating is consistent theology of the day. It's just misapplied to Job, much like what we see in our day. That's actually the purpose of the book of Job. That's another purpose it serves within the Hebrew Bible, helping us see the tension between what we know to be true theologically and what we see happening in real life and the challenge of correctly interpreting events and applying scripture. But that's a topic for another time. 
Suffice it to say for now, in Job chapter 4, Eliphaz, that is one of Job's friends, tries to help Job see his sin, his rebellion before God. Now, we know Job's not guilty in that way. But just listen to how Eliphaz tries to help Job become aware of his sin. He asks Job in chapter 4, verse 17, Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now, Eliphaz is assuming here, no, that's not, no, that a man cannot be pure before his maker. He can't be right before God. And here's why. Listen to the contrast in the next verse. In verse 18, even in his servants, he puts no trust. Now, remember, especially in Job, most of the book, um, maybe all of the book, is Hebrew parallelism. Um, meaning there's there's two lines often mentioned where the second line repeats the first line. Um, and so just listen to this verse. Even in his servants, he puts no trust. Now, what servants is he talking about there? In the next line, listen to this. Even in his servants, he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. Now, then the contrast again in the next verse, in verse 19. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is in the dust. Uh, obviously speaking of humans there. Now let me read that all together since I broke that up. Eliphaz says to Job, hey, can, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can man be pure before his maker? Even his servants he puts no trust, and his angels he charges with error. Well, how much more then those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is in the dust? In other words, Eliphaz is saying, if God can't fully trust his heavenly beings, uh, he charges them with error, well, how much less does he trust humans to be pure and right before him? In chapter 15, Eliphaz asks, what is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of woman that he can be righteous? And then again, listen to the contrast in the next verse, verse 15. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones. And listen to this. The heavens are not pure in his sight. Now, the holy ones in the Old Testament, again, reference to members of his divine council, those heavenly beings. Uh, again, we see that contrast between the humans and the heavenly beings and their um, their guilt before God uh, for those who, who rebel. Um, we're focusing on something that you already know. There's been a rebellion in heaven and on earth. God's image bearers, whether image bearers in heaven or on earth, have used their God-given free will to rebel against God. Now, having free will is one of the ways image bearers represent God. Heavenly and earthly image bearers are not robots who follow simple programming or instinct. They are free beings just as God as a free, is a free being. So let's return to the image bearing status just for a moment. In previous episodes, we came to see that bearing God's image is more than just sharing his attributes, things like having free will. Bearing God's image means representing God. But here's the distinction we need to make. Being an image bearer is a status. That is who we are. We've seen that in previous episodes. God's representatives here on earth. But we image God through our God-given attributes that we share with God. Things like intelligence, things like 
creativity, things like our free will. In other words, these God-given attributes that we share with our Creator are the means of imaging God on earth. Whether in heaven or on earth, God gave his image bearers two things. Number one, he gave them status as image bearers. And number two, he gave them the ability or the means, the attributes to carry out his will, that is his decrees on earth. As we've seen in previous episodes, God desires to share his rule with his image bearers. So back to Genesis chapter 3. The Garden of Eden is God's residence, his headquarters, where his heavenly and earthly image bearers are. Listen to how the serpent tries to persuade Eve to use her free will to disobey God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 5, again, this is the serpent um, tempting the woman. He says in verse 5 of Genesis 3, For God knows, Elohim, for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like Elohim, God, knowing good and evil. Now, do you remember the Hebrew word that is translated God? It is Elohim. Do you remember it can be translated either singular or plural, depending on the context, depending on the grammar and the verbs around it? Well, in Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is a lot like Psalm 82, verse 1, the psalm that we looked at episodes ago that says God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Genesis 3, 5 is like Psalm 82, 1, in that the word Elohim occurs two times in the same verse. The first instance is singular because the verb God has taken his stand, taken his place is one word in Hebrew, and it indicates um, a singular subject. And then here in Genesis 3, 5, we have God knows. Knows is a verb that indicates a singular subject as well. It's singular in its form. But in Psalm 82, 1, just as we've seen in the second instance, Elohim should be translated plural because to be in the midst of requires translating Elohim as God's plural. Um, the argument is that in Genesis 3, 5, where we have the word Elohim twice in one verse, just like Psalm 82, verse 1, it should actually read as follows. For God knows, the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God's Elohim, knowing good and evil. The argument is, is this. The temptation is you will be like the members of God's divine council, the sons of God in the heavenly realm. Now, why is this the argument? Listen to how the Lord responds to the rebellion in Genesis 3, verse 22. To man's rebellion, he says this in verse 22, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, addressing his divine counsel, in knowing good and evil. Now, most English translations render the second instance as God, singular, capital G. But the context, again, and what we've seen in verse 22, seems to suggest it should be plural. And it connects to the theological idea we've seen in Psalm 82 and Genesis 1. Uh, Let us make man in our image and other passages that we've seen in previous episodes. In verse 22, God is speaking to his divine council members saying, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. The temptation in verse 5 was for Eve to take the fruit and to become like one of the divine council members in knowing good and evil. 
Now listen to Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3. It's this Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place. Hey, remember what we learned about stars and the sons of God in previous episodes. Now listen to the contrast in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Now, think of Eden where heaven and earth come together, heavenly beings, earthly beings. The psalmist says in verse 5, Yet you have made him, that's mankind, a little lower than the Elohim. The Hebrew word is Elohim. And so in some translations it says this, Yet you have made him, that is mankind, a little lower than God. Um, just so you know, we're not a little lower than God. We are We are a lot lower than God, okay? In verse 5, uh, that word Elohim there, it really should be translated gods. Uh, that should give us the imagery of the divine council members. And that's how the newer translations will translate that. So in verse 5, the ESV actually says, Yet you have made him, that is mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Again, the Elohim and crowned him, that is mankind, with glory and honor, right? They're steward kings on earth. In verse 6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, so again, back to the basics, the temptation for Eve and Adam here is that if they violate God's command, they will become like the other Elohim, like the other lowercase G, gods, sons of God, heavenly beings, members of the divine council, knowing good and evil. And that's exactly what happened. After the fall, Adam and Eve knew good and evil just as the other members of the divine council knew good and evil. It's here we get to the matter concerning sin and suffering in our world today. In previous episodes, we've seen just how exalted Yahweh is above other Elohim. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. In fact, Isaiah 46.10, Yahweh says, I am God. There is none else. I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So, wait just a moment. If God knew the choice his earthly and heavenly beings would make in violating his will, isn't God responsible for sin and suffering in our world today? Or, if God is good, the other question is, why does he just not do away with sin and suffering? Okay, but remember... God has created heavenly and earthly beings in his image. God is a free being. He's not a robot. He has created heavenly and earthly beings with a genuine free will. And Dr. Heiser says that God knew the risk of Eden, but he deemed the existence of humankind preferable to our eternal absence. In reality, there's just a few options. Number one, not creating heavenly beings or earthly beings at all. Number two, creating heavenly and earthly beings as mindless robots or just to follow instinct. Or number three, creating heavenly beings and earthly beings with free will and accepting the risk because of the value of having heavenly and earthly beings freely desiring to obey God's will and join in his plan. God knew this would happen. 
But it doesn't at all mean that he is the source of sin and suffering today, or he is the reason that sin and suffering is a part of our world. That is not the case at all. This is where we work to understand how foreknowledge and predestination are both related and not related. Foreknowledge is knowing what will happen. The Lord clearly knows what will happen. Predestination is determining what will happen. And some things the Lord does determine will happen. Other things he does he does not. Now listen to David's request in 1 Samuel chapter 23. This is kind of an excellent chapter to look at and understand foreknowledge and free will together. In 1 Samuel 23, uh, verse 2, we read this, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Now, just note that it appears here that the Lord knows David will be victorious in saving Keilah. David asked, Should I do it? And the Lord says, Yes, go and do it. But in verse 3, Verse 3 tells us that David's men were afraid to go with him. So in verse 4, we read again that David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And so, yes, the Lord intends victory. In verse 5, and David and his men went to Keilah, fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah, right? Just like God said. Now it's subtle here, but notice what we see. David asked God two questions. Number one, should I go to the city of Keilah? And number two, will we win? And God's answer is um, yes and yes. So David goes and he leads his men and they're successful just as God said. But notice what we read in the following verse. In verse 7, we read this. Now, it was told Saul, now that's the guy that's after David. He's the king, and things are not going well. Uh, Saul is after David, trying to, trying to murder him. In verse 7, now it was told to Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, Well, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Now, you remember Saul's kind of a crazy person at this time. God is not really on Saul's side. Saul just assumes this is the this is taking place, that David has trapped himself there in Keilah. And so in verse 8, Saul gets his people ready to go after David and his men. And in verse 9, we find that David knew that Saul was plotting against him, we read. David knew that Saul was plotting against him, and he said to Abathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. In verse 10, David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, he uses the covenant name, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. So here we see that David knows Saul's coming after him, and he asked the Lord two questions. Again, number one, he asked him in verse 11, Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? In other words, will these people give me up? Will they hand me over to Saul when he gets here? And then number two, David says this, Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. So David asked two questions. Number one, is Saul really coming? And number two, will these people really hand me over? And listen to the Lord's response. And the Lord said, he will come down. And in verse 12, then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. 
So the all-knowing God of Israel, Yahweh, tells David, yes, Saul will come down, and yes, the people of Keilah will hand you over. But listen to what we read next. In verse 13, then David and his men who were about 600 arose and they departed from Keilah and they went wherever they could go. And listen to this. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Did you hear that? God said to David, yes and yes, right? Yes and yes. Saul is coming down. And yes, the people of Keilah will hand you over. But when Saul found out that David had left, he ended up not traveling to Keilah. And of course, the people of Keilah did not hand David over, right? Because he wasn't there. Here's the point. Dr. Heiser suggests this. The Lord foresaw both of these events, right? We see this. The Lord understood what was going to take place, even though these events never ended up occurring, (laughs) They would have occurred if David had remained, but since David left, they did not occur. Passages like this show us that foreknowledge of something does not necessarily mean that God has predestined it to happen. God foreknows possibilities. Can you even fathom that for a moment? That God understands, he foreknows all possibilities But foreknowing all possibilities does not mean that the Lord predestines them to happen. Just because God foreknows something does not mean that he has predestined it to happen. Dr. Heiser says, since foreknowledge doesn't require predestination, foreknown events that happen may or may not have been predestined. Dr. Heiser says God may foreknow an event, and predestine that event, but such predestination does not necessarily include decisions that lead up to that event. We've seen this in previous episodes in 1 Kings 22 and in Daniel 4. God clearly decrees something, but then left the means of how the decree would be carried out up to the decisions of his free will image bearers. Thus, God is, is sovereign and working with his image bearers who operate within their free will. And here's why this is such an important distinction to make. God is not the source of sin and suffering in our world today. He's not the cause of it. Sin and suffering are a part of our existence today because of heavenly and earthly beings created in the image of God who use their free will to oppose the will of God, the giver of good gifts, the source of eternal life, the God of all comfort. Dr. Heiser says there's no biblical reason to assert that God predestined all the evil things throughout human history simply because he foreknew them. I mention that because you know that is the theological system. Dr. Heiser says that God also foreknew a solution to the fall that he himself would guarantee. We know that with Jesus and the cross. The risk was awful, Dr. Heiser says, but he loved the notion of humanity too much to call off the whole thing, Dr. Heiser says. The argument is often made that God needs evil to display his goodness and his glory, and that is simply not true. God doesn't need anything, but God does have the power, he does have the wisdom, he does have the love to work within evil and suffering to bring about his goodwill to bring order and life to that which has been corrupted by sin and death. And in his sovereignty, God has made it so. 
that what we choose to do actually matters. Can I remind you of that in this episode? If you if you come away with one thing, can you can you see in Scripture that what you do actually matters? God is a free being, and He has made you in His image to freely choose what you do with your life day by day. God decrees the ends, right? You can you can read all the ends for yourself in the Bible. We know they're there. We know what they are. At least we know what some of them are. But he has left the means up to us and others created in his image. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll finish with this passage today. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, we read this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That is why he is not ashamed, that is Jesus saying, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's you and I saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The author of Hebrews says in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is, in our humanity, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made, that is, Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that is in our humanity, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted.